This is the fourth Sunday after Pentecost. And as we previously said, this season of Pentecost goes from Pentecost Sunday all the way to the first Sunday of Advent as we get close to Christmas. In other words, this season of witness reflects the time that we are in until Jesus returns, until he comes again. And so we are endeavoring to know what it means as the church of Jesus Christ to live out our calling to be his witness. Today we are going to be looking at Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. And the title of our study today is Resolving Conflict, Preserving Calling. But take a moment and look at these opening chapters and what we understand about the church. We have been looking at the day of Pentecost, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, the beginning of the church, and we have seen God's design for the church. We understood a biblical principle for interpretation, and that is that which is original or that which is first is the design is the doctrine, is the intent, is the interpretation that God has for everything that follows. When we look at what takes place through the development of the church over the next few chapters, there are four words that characterize the original church, which is God's intended template for every successive church. That is that what we see about the church in these opening chapters of Acts helps us to understand the kind of church that God intends for us to be. We are able to measure ourselves according to the church that is in the book of Acts and see whether we are on track or whether we have gotten sidetracked, whether we are the kind of church that he intends for us to be, able to have the effective witness that he has called us to have, or whether somewhere along the line we have been distracted or detoured. And we are no longer effectively being who and what he has called us to be. So there are four words that characterize the original church. The first word is kerygma. Remember that the New Testament was originally written in Greek. And this Greek word kerygma means proclamation. We find it in Luke chapter 4 when Jesus used it as he unrolled the scroll to Isaiah and read that the Spirit of the Lord had anointed him to proclaim the good news. We find the same word in Romans chapter 10 and verse 14, where the Apostle Paul writes, How will they hear unless someone is sent to them to preach the good news of the gospel to them? We read in Acts chapter 5 and verse 42, that day after day, in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stop teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. Kerygma, the proclamation of the gospel. The second aspect, or the second word that characterizes the original church as our template is the word Ecclesia. 
Ecclesia is often translated fellowship. But that English word fellowship is too one-sided to really translate effectively the word ecclesia. It is a far deeper word and a far richer word than can be captured really in the English language with any one word. It means called out ones, assembly of believers. It's often it's often translated as church, but it's much more than that. It means a people who are called out, a people who are set apart, a people who are distinct and different. We read in Acts chapter 2, verses 40 to 41, Then Peter continued preaching for a long time, strongly urging all his listeners, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. Those who believed what Peter said were baptized and added to the church that day about 3,000 in all. And then we read at the end of that chapter, and each day the Lord added to their fellowship those who were being saved. The third word is koinonia. And like ecclesia, it is often mistranslated. It is often translated as communion, fellowship, being together. But once again, it is a word that has much deeper meaning in the original Greek language than what can be captured in the English language. We could define it by saying that it is covenantal communion. Often our fellowship with one another, our being together is very optional. But the word koinonia goes much deeper. It means that I am bound to you. I belong to you. I must be with you. I must be in partnership with you. I must walk with you. I must love you as Jesus has loved me. It has been defined as a divinely intimate, holy unity among Christ's followers and between them and their Lord, involving everything about their lives. And we see that in Acts chapter 2 as it describes the life that they had together. They were together continually. They shared meals with one another and shared the Lord's Supper together. They were together for times of teaching by the apostles, together for times of prayer, together in homes, together in the meeting place in the tabernacle, or the temple, rather. And they lived out this life of care and concern for one another that is described in Acts chapter 4 and verse 32. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything that they had. Koinonia. The fourth word that describes this original church as the template for our church is the word prosyuke. The word is commonly translated prayer. But once again, it is a word that goes much deeper. It's a compound word, pros meaning face to face, and uke meaning aspiration or desire. 
David, in fact, captured this in Psalm 27 when he said, One desire I have, one thing I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. Moses lived this out as he would go to the tent of meeting and their fellowship with God, commune with God face to face. It is a face to face desire to be with God. And that's what prayer truly is. It's not just simply me sharing my request, petitioning God for something, but it is born out of a desire to have an intimate relationship with God, to be face-to-face in His presence, to truly seek Him as the most valuable aspiration in my life. Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47 tell us, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, or koinonia, to the breaking of bread and to prayer, to -to face-to-face aspiration in the presence of God. Now, these four words characterize the original church. They define what we should be like. They are the template for every church since that first church established by the Holy Spirit with a multi-ethnic makeup in that urban setting of Jerusalem. This is what God intends our church to be like, the qualities that he intends for us to possess. And as we read through chapters 3 through 5, the church is growing, it's developing, Thousands more people are being added. The church is being effective in each of these areas. And as they are, God is blessing by many more people coming to know Jesus Christ. We get to chapter 6 now. And all of a sudden, the church is faced with a crisis. The first major crisis that we read about. It is a dangerous moment for the church. Let's walk through what happens over these seven verses and see four things that characterize this circumstance. First of all, the issue. We read that in those days when the number of disciples was increasing, the Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. The early church had a food distribution program for the widows that was common among Jews. But it was also a desire of that early church to take care of one another. But in the process of those meals being provided every day, Some people were being overlooked because of the size of the church and the way that it had grown. And this moment arose when the Hellenistic Jews or those who were of a Greek-speaking background complained against those of a Hebrew-speaking background. Now understand that this was not a small issue. 
We have already seen that the ecclesia, or these called out believers, had been confronted by external attacks and threats. Twice the apostles have been brought before the Sanhedrin. They have been beaten. They have been threatened not to speak any longer in the name of Jesus. The authorities had tried to shut them down and squelch their proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The attacks have been vicious. The threats have been deadly. But they had risen above those threats and they had continued to do the work that Jesus had called them to do. But now they were being faced with a subversive, satanic, internal threat that endangered their very existence as the witness of Jesus Christ. The words that are used here are complained against. And it reveals to us that there was a murmuring that began secretly. I didn't get mine. Did you get yours? No, I didn't get mine. I wonder who else didn't get theirs. And this complaint began to spread. And then the complaint was being made against someone, against others. Division and a wedge was being driven between two groups of people. Understand that behind every division, behind every separation, behind every us versus them is the work of Satan. The Bible says that every division and every sort of disorder is authored by Satan. He is the master of division. He calls one third of heaven's angels to revolt against God and to line up behind him to usurp the place of God. He divided heaven. And every work of disunity is satanic at its root. The second aspect that we see in this passage is the priorities. And we read, So the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, It would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over them and give our attention to prosuke and kerygma, to prayer and the ministry of the word. Kerygma and prosuke were non-negotiable priorities for the church. This is what the Lord had called them to. This was the priority if they were going to do the work that Jesus intended. The issue needed to be resolved without compromising or minimizing the heart of the church's identity and its work. The third thing we see is the solution. So the apostles said to this group of disciples that now numbers more than 5,000 people, brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom. This proposal pleased the whole group. 
They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. Also, Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. They presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. Now notice with me that they didn't look for seven men who were known to be good at logistics, at facilitating logistics, setting in order a system and a procedure that would make sure that the distribution of food was equitable to everyone and that no one was overlooked. They didn't say, let's look for someone who can establish a good customer support and customer care division. No, they looked for men who were full of the Holy Spirit. It doesn't matter what aspect of the work of God we are talking about. All spiritual work requires spiritual people, or the outcome will be nothing more than what a non-spiritual person can accomplish. And so we read the result is that the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. Once again, the equitable distribution of food was not the ultimate goal. It was the effectiveness of witness resulting in fulfilled obedience to Christ's command to make disciples. Do you understand what took place as a result of them choosing men who were full of the Holy Spirit to handle what had become a divisive issue within the church? The result was that the church became effective in areas where they had not previously been effective. I mean, this is a big deal when we read that a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. It was the Sadducees or the priesthood as part of the Sanhedrin who threatened the disciples, don't speak anymore in the name of Jesus. The sacrifice of Jesus Christ had rendered the office and the work of priest obsolete. There was no longer any forgiveness of sins because of an animal sacrifice. And so to embrace the faith meant that they were abandoning their identity, their livelihood, their belief system, and becoming completely and newly called out set apart, identified with Jesus Christ and his work of salvation. The gospel was reaching a group of people it had not reached before. And so we understand something very important, that any aspect of God's work, even though it may seem unspiritual in nature, must be handled in a spiritual way means. And when it is, it will enable us to have far greater impact for Jesus Christ than we would have otherwise. I want to share with you four thoughts to wrap up this study. Number one, 
Divisions and differences are inevitable because human nature is inherently sinful, self-oriented, and easily manipulated. We expect there to be differences and divisions in the world. We don't expect it to be in the body of Christ. And we haven't seen it so far in the original church. What we did see was on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit transcended ethnic and racial, language, identities, everything that sets people apart from one another. And he brought together a group of people where all of those distinctions were secondary to the fact that they had a new identity with one another in Jesus Christ. But now those issues are beginning to surface. You see, the Hellenistic Jews were looked down on by the Hebraic Jews. In other words, the Greek-speaking Jews were considered to be second class by the Hebrew-speaking Jews. And so things that used to be part of the way they saw themselves compared to one another, that the Holy Spirit had erased on the day of Pentecost, were now beginning to resurface. And you and I will always be inclined to hold ourselves apart from certain other people, to see differences, to act in a way that shows that we are perhaps superior to someone else, better than someone else, or at the very least different from someone else. We're not like them. We don't do what they do. But that's our sinful human nature. That is not the work of the Holy Spirit. And yet you and I have to recognize that it's always going to be there. And we need to respond not out of our old sinful human nature, but out of the Spirit of God that now dwells within us and calls us to live differently and to reflect the image of Jesus Christ. The second thing that I see in this passage, divisions and inequalities, especially in the body of Christ, must be addressed for the sake of our spiritual integrity and effectiveness of witness. If we are going to be effective in the calling that Jesus gave to us, which was to take the gospel, preach it to all people everywhere, make disciples of all nations, and teach them to follow Jesus Christ, if we are going to fulfill it, it means that you and I cannot let any difference or inequality remain. We can't be effective in making disciples of all people everywhere if we are going to hold on to our differences or if we are going to allow any inequities, any inequalities to remain. In society, we address inequalities by endeavoring to raise awareness, enact legislation. But in the church, we understand divisions and inequalities in a much deeper way. Any division, any 
inequality, any racial separation of us from one another, threatens and undermines our witness to tell Jesus to everyone and to show everyone God's love. It is contrary to the image of Christ, where, as we read previously in Colossians chapter 3, there is no Jew or Greek, no male or female, no civilized or uncivilized, but Christ is all and in all. To not deal with divisions and inequalities, to accept distinctions that separate us from one another, also places us under satanic influence and not under the lordship of Jesus Christ. And so you and I, for that reason, we cannot allow divisions or inequalities to remain. We need to deal with them or we will have fractured our spiritual integrity and we will be ineffective in our witness for Jesus Christ. Thirdly, at their root, all issues of brokenness and inequity are spiritual and require a spiritual response based on spiritual issues. If we go back to the Garden of Eden, when God created everything, it was perfect. Humanity was in a perfect relationship with God. Humanity had perfect fellowship with God. Adam and Eve were in perfect relationship and harmony with one another. But when they sinned, immediately there was division between themselves and division between them and God. Behind that division was the work of the adversary to divide them from God. And in dividing them from God, he divided them from one another. Understand this, when you and I read through the New Testament, reconciliation at its heart is reconciliation between humanity and God. And there is an understanding in the New Testament that we will never be adequately reconciled to one another across the divisions that separate us, whether they be racial, ethnic, socioeconomic. We will never be truly reconciled to one another unless we are first reconciled to God. Our sinful nature will always be at work to bring another division, another separation. At its root, all brokenness, all inequity is spiritual and it must be dealt with based on spiritual principles. When Jesus came to reconcile us to God, the scripture said that he set aside his prerogatives as the divine son of God. He took upon himself the appearance of a man, and the nature of a doulos, or a slave. He humbled himself to become a servant. Jesus himself said, I did not come to be served, but to serve and to give my life a ransom for many. In speaking to the issues that existed between different people in the Philippian church, the apostle Paul said, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Don't be concerned about yourselves only. You look after the concerns and the welfare of one another. In the way that Christ exemplified when he humbled himself 
in order to become our Savior and make us right with God. We can't reconcile ourselves to one another unless we are willing to humble ourselves. We can't reconcile unless we have the love of God in our hearts. Jesus calls us to go much further than the world will ever go in achieving reconciliation. Jesus said, I tell you, this is what love really is. It is not what you do. You love those who love you. But you love your enemies. You do good to them. You bless those who curse you. And when you do so, you will truly be sons of the Most High God. For your Father is good both to those who are wicked and those who are righteous. So be righteous, be perfect, even as your Father in heaven is perfect. And then finally, if we have effectively resolved the issue according to spiritual principles and God's purposes, then we will see the work of God go forward with greater effectiveness. Understand this. The distribution of food was not the ultimate goal. The ultimate goal was the work of God. The adversary had brought an issue. And he manipulated that issue to cause people to start murmur against one another. And it increased until there was this threatening division between those who spoke Greek and those who sp spoke Hebrew. Those who were from a Greek background, those who were from a background within Israel. So the heart of the issue was much more than just dealing with the distribution of food. There was something going on spiritually within people's hearts that would cause them to respond in that manner. But it needed to be addressed. Our inequalities damage our witness, and they make us spiritually weaker than our adversary, Satan. But those inequalities cannot be made right spiritually just by different protocols and procedures. At best, that would simply create a sort of truce between us and other people, but it wouldn't deal with the heart of our spirit and the issues that are in our spirit. It needs to be dealt with spiritually. But we see in this passage when it was dealt with in the way that was right in the sight of God, when spiritual men were brought in to do this work that you and I would consider could be done by anybody with the right skill set, but when spiritual priorities were maintained, the result was that the work of God went forward in ways and into areas where it had not gone before, where there had not been results and effectiveness. If there is true spiritual accomplishment regarding an issue, then there will be spiritual fruitfulness and it will be apparent. The number of disciples multiplied and a great number of priests became obedient to the faith. You see, you and I could redistribute wealth. We could restrain corporate greed provide basic universal income and free health care for everyone. We could provide food for every hungry person in the church. 
And still, everyone would perish in their sins. It requires the proclamation of the gospel to make people right with God. We could do all of these things, and still, there would be evil in this world. We could endeavor to make every single thing in this world that is wrong right. But there would still be Boko Haram and Al-Shabaab. There would still be 20 million people a year in human and sex trafficking. With the United States being one of the most egregious of three nations in the world. The priority is the work of God done in the way of God. It is people of God coming together to resolve the inequities and the differences that exist according to spiritual principles with the heart of Jesus Christ and in the spirit in which he came to reconcile us to God. It is us not being content with just reflecting who we are and what we are It is a determination that we are going to be the kind of church that crosses ethnic lines, socioeconomic lines, racial lines, to bring the gospel, to minister, to care for people, to love people, to help them until they too become disciples of Jesus Christ. And only then are we truly who Christ has called us to be. Only then do we truly reflect our calling as set-apart ones who are living out the fullness of the life of Jesus Christ. You and I are living in a moment where the inequities and inequalities of our society are rising to the surface. And they are demanding attention. We as the church must respond. And yet our response goes deeper and it's far more extensive than the world will ever respond. For we need to see the hearts of people transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it begins with us living out a mutual concern for one another, a care of each other, and a love for everyone who is different than us. Seeking to see through our prayer and our proclamation of the gospel People being brought to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ and being made one with us, even as they are one with God. We need to set the example for the world. And if we remain who we are and what we are, just doing things the way that we have been, looking like we are, we have fallen short. So may the Holy Spirit enable us, even as he did the church in this moment of crisis, to resolve it in such a way that we are able to maintain our calling and go forth to see greater fruitfulness and greater effectiveness. I pray that this is true about me. I pray it's true about you. I pray that it's true about us as Moravia Assembly of God. Would you join me in praying that the Lord would accomplish that work in us? Amen.